Um, it's good to see you today. It's good to be in the house of the Lord and to be able to uh, unite our hearts in worship, come in out of the cold and, and uh, study the Word and fellowship with one another. I, I hope that you um, take some time today and greet one another. We got to greet each other for a few minutes. I, I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, so probably a lot are just going to be rushing out so we get ready. And I was reading some things about the Super Bowl, a 30-second commercial this year is going to cost $6.5 million. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. No. You know, I was, I, didn't Tom Brady just retire just the other day? In 2005, he was interviewed by 60 Minutes. And in that interview, he said this. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there must be something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But I thank God there's got to be more to it than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. That is insightful, people. You get to the apex of the game, young people. Sports are wonderful and fun and all those things. But it doesn't bring eternal joy. It doesn't bring lasting peace. Um, and so, sink your roots deep into Christ. Um, he is where true satisfaction and joy is. Our chief end, we go through that so many times. What is our chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's where it's at. It ain't in Super Bowl rings. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Last week, we began looking at verses 9 to 21. Today, we'll finish this section in the book of Romans. So, we'll be finishing up chapter 12. Romans 13, where we go, where we jump into next. And by the way, you will see the connection today. We're going to deal with the connection. So many times, we miss connections because we read chapter by chapter. The thought of Romans chapter 12 goes directly into chapter 13, and I'll show you that link. But next week, we look at, begin to look at chapter 13. It's going to take us a little while to be in chapter 13. There, the Apostle Paul deals with the issue of the Christian's relationship to human government. This has been a big question all through the ages, but a lot of Americans have really wrestled with this. A lot of people in the world have really been wrestling with this the last couple of years during the COVID crisis. And so this is kind of like right at the forefront of all of our thinking. So we're going to go into that. And so during that, uh, I want to put a plug in on this. During the worship service, we'll be looking at chapter 13 in here, and I'm going to kind of be tag-teaming 
with Jack, who for a few weeks, Jack Edwards, is going to be doing a Sunday school class. Most of you know Jack Edwards. He's an attorney. And he's going to be doing a Sunday school class in here. And he's going to be sharing with us basically kind of the, the biblical basis for the American legal system. And he's going to be sharing some thoughts there, not only looking at the Scripture, but looking at the legal system in the United States of America. He's going to help us understand it. It's one of those areas of civics that many times we just, like it goes right over our head. Because until you got to go to court for something, or you need an attorney, you just don't even think about it. And so we need to understand things. And so he's going to be giving us some really good principles there. I'd encourage you to come to Sunday school over the next week. I'd encourage you to come to Sunday school all the time, but come and uh, enjoy that class, and we'll be kind of tag-teaming on some of those principles. Today, let's read the text, and then we're going to do a little bit of review, and then jump into the end of the chapter. Verse 9, he says, let love be genuine. Be repulsed, abhor, turn in horror from what is evil. Hold tightly, cling, cleave. Same word used to speak of the marital relationship. Therefore a man shall leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And they shall become what? One flesh. And he's saying here, the Christian, the one who is walking in Christ, is to be so attuned to that which is good, it is as though we were married to it. We are one with it. Cleave to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, proud. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Repay no one evil when they do you evil. Instead, give careful thought to do what is honorable. Think about that. When someone does you wrong, instead of just like, oh, they cut me off, and you go into a road rage, it's just, oh, the hair stands up on your neck, doesn't it? You want to respond? He says, give careful thought. And do what is honorable in the sight of everyone. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. And then he throws in a word, beloved. Beloved. 
And he's going to bring this one home with that word because he's just talking directly to us and he's showing a link of love here. He says, Beloved, never. Notice that word. Never. Never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. Because it is written, the book of Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, now he quotes from Proverbs 25, verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be conquered. It's the word overcome. It's a term of warfare here. Do not be conquered by evil. Rather, conquer evil by doing good. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you bless your word. Give us insight into it. Make us uncomfortable where we need to be uncomfortable. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Confront us where we need confronted. Correct us. Confirm us. Lord, we confess to you our need. And so I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we go through a litany, a a quick listing of so many attributes that God would require of us that are not natural to us. They don't arise from the natural man. These are things that are directly contrary to who I am as a person. Why would I want to show someone else honor over myself? Why would I want to put someone in front of myself? Why would I want to take the things that I have and contribute generously to them? I would rather hoard it to myself. In the natural mind and in the natural man, all these things, if someone does me wrong, I want to get them back. The natural man. Everything in this list is really a description of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because this is how he lived. And as Christ followers, he is calling us to this same standard. And it's a difficult list. He began the list with a general statement. You remember, let's think of the structure of the text. There is a central command that kind of governs this. He says, let your love be genuine. That's how he begins this. Let your love be real, not fake. Let it be real. That word genuine is the Greek word for a hypocrite, someone who is a pretender, someone who is living behind a mask, someone who is acting out a part. And he says, don't act out a part of being a Christian. Be the real deal. Let your love be genuine. Let it be real. And then what is real? Then we ask the question, so what is genuine love? What does it mean to genuinely love my neighbor? The whole law is summarized in two categories. Number one, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, with everything that is in you. The second is like unto it. It is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. 
That was Jesus' words. So what is genuine love? What does that look like? It looks like this. Being repulsed by what is evil. And cleaving and clinging to what is good. That's what he's saying in the text. He says, let your love be genuine. How do I know what genuine love is? I turn in horror at what is evil. And I cleave to what is good. And then I ask the question, so what is good and what is evil? This goes all the way back to the garden. We talked about that last week, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How do I know what is good and how do I know what is evil? Am I just left to my own conscience? Does God just leave me to myself to determine for myself what is right and what is wrong in any action or in any circumstance? No, he does not. He gave me his word, and here he gives me a whole list of things. What does it mean to do what is good? It means to bless and not curse. It means to pray for those who persecute. It means to feed and give a drink to my enemy. It means never to seek vengeance for myself. It means to contribute liberally and freely to someone in need, to show hospitality. These are the things that are good. But if I turn them on their head, and I'm a Scrooge, that's not good. That's evil. Someone does me wrong, I wait till they're not looking and I get them back. That's evil. Good and evil. In this list, now I told you last week, we've been in Romans 12 for a long time. I think it is time to move into chapter 13. This list, we could be here for another six months and talk about every one of these things in great detail. Be constant in prayer. What does that mean? How do you do that? Be boiling in spirit. All the different things that are there. I'm boiling in here today just because I'm, I'm always hot in here. You're probably cold in here. There's some people that are back there shivering in a blanket wearing their park, and I'm hot. You know, that's just me. But, so we're not talking about being boiling in the body. We're talking about being boiling in spirit. What does that mean? How do I live that way? Three general qualities, I think, summarize this section that I think God wants from me. One is, God wants me to have a mindset as a believer that's not about me. It's about him and others. Love God, love others. And you see this in this list. We are to honor one another. We are to love one another with brotherly affection. Even our enemies. That there is to be a mindset in the Christian. This comes from our Savior. That's the only place it comes from. This is the way Jesus was. Is. What is Jesus doing in heaven today? Just sitting there enjoying the throne? He's doing what? He's praying for you. The God of the universe is praying for us. 
is a mindset of serving. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. So, number one, a mindset of putting others before self. The second one that I think is an important one, and it's all through this list as well, is that there needs to be in our heart and in our mind a willingness to invest the resources that God entrusts to us and to invest them in the lives of others for his glory. God calls us to invest. That's monetarily. It's also our time. It's also our talents. God gives you abilities, and God wants you to pass them on to the next generation. God wants us to invest in the kingdom and invest in the lives of others, and we see that all through this list, that we should have an intentional mindset of how to invest. Some of you are not intentional in any way in how you invest your money. It's just whatever happens, happens. But we're not talking about money. Many of us as Christians live that way spiritually. We just go through life. We're not doing anything intentional. Are we intentionally investing the resources that God has entrusted to us and looking for people to invest them in? People who are a good investment. Now, I told you, go with me to, I want to take a minute here. Go to Luke 19, because I had to skip over this last week. Go to Luke 19, and we'll do this pretty quick, but I want you to look at this. Luke 19. There's two sides to this equation. I told you last week. And Jesus tells a story that bears this out. It's the story of a man who entrusts to his servants talents or denarii money. And he's expecting a return on an investment. One man is given ten, one man is given five, and one man is given one. The man who's given the ten goes out and makes another ten. The man who's given five goes out and makes another five. The one who's given one does what? He's scared to death of his master, so he goes and he digs a hole in the ground and he buries it. The master comes back and he wants an accounting. The man who made the ten comes to his master and says, you gave me ten, I'll give you another ten. Good and profitable servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The guy who's given five comes and he gives him the additional five. He says, you're a good and profitable servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who's given the one comes to his master and he says, I was scared to death of you. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to lose what you gave me. I was scared to take a risk, so I dug a hole and I buried it. Here's what you gave me. Did he say, oh, I'm so glad you gave me back my one? He said, you're a bum. <laughs> right? What were you thinking? At least you should have took it to the bank so I'd have got a, not much interest. Well, I got a little interest. And he says, what? Depart from me. 
And I want you to notice how Jesus closes this. This is important. In verse 24 of chapter 19, he says this. He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one who has the ten. They said to him, Lord, he already has ten. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That doesn't fly well in our culture of equality. But what is he saying? Two sides to this. One, as believers, mature believers, we need to be willing to take a risk to invest in other people. We need to take a risk. But on the flip side, you better be a good investment. You better be a good investment. People are looking to invest. You squander it, you'll lose it. And even what you have will be taken away. The third one is where I want to spend the bulk of our time. In this list, there is repeatedly commands to make little of the offenses of others. I'm going to submit to you the ability to forgive and to let things go is fundamental to success in the Christian life, in life in general. Jesus said, the scripture says, love, we're talking about genuine love, love covers a multitude of transgressions. In these verses, I want you to go back to chapter 12, because I want to dig a little bit deeply into the text for a minute here and ask some questions and set the stage for next week. And where I want to start reading is in verse 17 when he says this, repay no one evil for evil. In other words, no tit for tat. Rather, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Do what? Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For when you do it, you will heap burning coals on his head. So do not be conquered by the evil that someone does to you. Rather, conquer that evil by actively doing something that is good. So someone does evil, you feed them. 
you give them a drink. And what happens? It heaps what? Calls a fire on their head. So let's think about this. The word repay, the word vengeance, there's the word wrath. There's the idea of peace here, be at peace with everyone. Now if you think about life with me, and you think about the way life happens for you, the way life happens for me, some offenses that we deal with are daily, and they're kind of easy to deal with. I mean, you don't like it, but you just work with this guy, and he drives you nuts, but you can overlook it, and you forgive him, and you're nice to him anyway. Ladies, you're husband always leaves his underwear behind the door. You get sick of it. You wish he'd put it in the hamper. You don't get him back. You forgive him and you keep going. They're just offenses. People let us down all the time. And he's saying, as that happens in your life, you need to have the ability and the quality of character that just lets you let it go. Sometimes you say something, but most of the time, you just let it go. You deal with it. You don't carry a grudge. You let it go. There are other offenses in life that are very dramatic. And they are life-altering. I think both are included here. But truth being told, I think the second is more at the forefront of this. Paul is talking to Christians who are about in the next decade to start getting fed to lions. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to have loved ones that get caught. They're going to have people in the church who compromise the community and turn people in. What are you going to do with that guy? I don't think he's so much here dealing with the easy things. I think in this text, he's talking to Christians, he's preparing them for something. how to respond to grave, life-altering injustice. What do I do when someone really does me wrong? Really does me wrong. The fundamental question I think that we've got to look at in this is this. When someone does me wrong... Not, how do I want to respond? When someone does me wrong, how does God want me to respond? Let's even take it a further step. How did Jesus respond? How did Jesus respond when people did him completely wrong? He didn't even open his mouth. in his own defense. So, 
this raises some really sticky issues. I mean, like, really sticky issues for us. It's one thing to think about, you know, just forgiving my neighbor when they uh, let their cows in my pasture and not me opening my gate and my cows in their pasture, getting them back. It's bigger than that. You know, what are these coals of fire? What is vengeance? What is revenge? How do all these things relate to justice? There are things here he's telling us to do, and there's some things he's telling us not to do. And there's some things that he just doesn't even touch on, and we want to look at those. The first thing that I want to make a point about, and this is very important that we understand this. This passage, he is speaking about individual social relationships. He is talking about my personal response. He is not talking about international affairs or civic life. He's talking about how I respond. And so he's not talking about international affairs. He's not laying down a blueprint for the State Department to follow. He's not saying if you just defund the police, everything will go well, because why would we seek vengeance when somebody burns down a city? He's not saying that. He is telling us that we are not to seek to get back at someone. He is telling us that God will repay. Here's the tie-in from the story that Dave read. The story of Abigail and David. Abigail's husband is shearing a lot of sheep. He's had a party, he's drunk, you remember the story, you just got a little of it. I didn't have time to have the whole chapter read. He is a wealthy landowner. All of his servants are together, there's a lot of food, and David and his mighty men have been hiding in the wilderness, and as they've been hiding in the wilderness, they've also been a resource of providing security and safety to many of these landowners. So David sends a message to Naboth and he, Nabal, and he says to him, send me some food. My guys would like to enjoy this feast as well. And Nabal says, who are you? You can forget it. David says, boys, put on your swords. We're going to go get some red meat. And it wasn't only going to be sheep. He is planning to kill them all. Abigail heard what was going on. She grabs a donkey and she flees to find David. And she says, wait a minute. Take a deep breath. Let's think about what we're doing here. And she reasons with him. David says to her, thank you. Because I was going to take in my own hands and bring vengeance on Nabal, your husband. I was going to seek to work, it says in the text, salvation 
with my own hands. Abigail goes home. Nabal found out what happened. What happened? God killed him. God took care of him. Doesn't always happen that way and that quickly. But it did there. God will repay. I want you to look with me in Romans 13 for a minute. This is important. Look in verse 4. We're going to read this whole passage next week to get in, in our minds what's going on here as he's talking about human government. But he's talking about rulers and authorities. And he says, he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. He is what? God's ruler, where the ruler is God's servant. And he, notice this word, is an avenger. That is the same word that is used in chapter 12 talking about vengeance. He is an avenger who carries out what? God's wrath on the evildoer. So what is he saying here? Notice the link. We miss this because we don't read two chapters in connection. He says, don't seek to take it in your own hands and to work out your own salvation and be a vigilante. Give place to wrath so God's minister, the ruler, can step in and can use the sword and can be God's man bringing God's wrath on what is wrong. So here's some truths that we need to think about when we think about this text. Number one, God does have an agent who bears the sword for him. It is civil authorities. They are elected or they are appointed ultimately from God to serve us, to protect us, and to work for justice. It is not vengeance to seek the protection of law. That is not vengeance. Someone does you wrong in a criminal way, it is not vengeance to seek the protection of law. It is wrong to be a vigilante. Paul modeled this in Acts chapter 16. I don't got much time, but in Acts 16, he is, he is flogged, he is thrown in prison, and then he appeals to his citizenship, and the people who are the rulers are like, uh-oh, we screwed up. At the end of the book of Acts, he appeals to Caesar to save his neck. They're going to kill him. He seeks the protection of law. It is not vengeance to seek a remedy under the law. That is not vengeance. When someone does you wrong, in a Christian way, there is a way to seek the remedy of the law. All through God's word, God provides principles of due process. 
He even does so in the church in Matthew 18 when he tells you how to do church discipline. One, two, three, you, you go through the process, you allow testimony, two or three witnesses, all those things, and you work through the issue. There is due process. He doesn't just say you sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. So it is not vengeance to seek a remedy under law. It is also not vengeance to provide for self-defense. That is not vengeance. We have a security team at the church. Why do we do that? not to get back at somebody that would come in here and bring harm. No, it is to protect you. So it is not vengeance to provide for self-defense. It is vengeance when I take the matter in my own hands and as a, ven as a vigilante seek to come to judgment and justice on my own. We are to defer to the governing authorities, that being the case. Now, here's an important point that I want to make. God never demands we seek justice when mercy will do. God never demands we seek justice when mercy will do. In James chapter 2, he says, You will have judgment without mercy if you show no mercy. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. In the New Testament, when Joseph hears that Mary is pregnant, he immediately thinks the worst. Why would he not? Why would he not? 
His remedy under law could be criminal prosecution. However, Joseph was a just man. And what did he do? He decides instead to show mercy and to simply divorce her privately. That was mercy. God never demands we show justice or do justice when mercy will do. God is asking his followers to show kindness to those who hurt him by giving them food and drink, by sheltering them. There is no way around it. There is no way around the fact that Jesus is calling his followers to be radical in how we deal with injustice. We are not to execute wrath, but we are to forgive the offender. And we do so by doing good, and when we do that, we heap coals of fire on his head. So what does that mean? What does it mean to heap coals of fire on his head? What does that mean? I mean, you know, I told you a couple weeks ago not to look at commentaries. What I meant by that is don't start there. Start in the text, do your own study, then go to a commentary. I, I looked at a bunch of commentaries on this. Because I'm asking, well, what in the world is that? I've heard all kinds of explanations, and every one of them just kind of, okay, whatever. You know, I read, oh, it was an Egyptian custom, and they would put a pan with coals on their head when they were mourning. Okay, maybe. I don't know. What is, it? what is that? Who would go around with a fry pan of hot coals on your head? I mean, just think of what he's saying there. What does this even look like? There's a couple things that are true of it that we definitely can say, and there's a couple things that are not true. The first thing that I think is very important, he says, feed your enemy, give him something to drink, and you will do this. You will put coals of fire on his head. He nowhere there promises that if you do good to your enemy, he will repent and become a Christian. He does not promise that. That is not a promise that is in the coals of fire on the head. There's not something in the Greek that says, if you do this, then the man who persecutes you will become a Christian. It does not say he will come to repentance. But he does say, when you do this, this will happen. You will heap coals of fire on his head. So what does that mean? The great theologian and my wife, Amy, and I sat and talked about this quite a bit yesterday. And together we churned on it. I, I, I think it has to mean this to some degree. I don't think it's an Egyptian walking around with a pan on his head. I think it's speaking about a sense of mental turmoil. I do think it has to do with something like a guilty conscience. I think it's this. I think it is a sense. If I do KD really wrong, and then next week she brings me a glass of water before I'm going to preach, you just put coals of fire on my head, my bald head on top of it. In that, 
I think what happens to me is there is a sense in my mind that my unjust action to my neighbor who has just done me good despite my offense is stoking the fires of God's wrath and I deserve it. I did you wrong when you did me right. And the mental turmoil that produces in me is this. When I stand before God and I am judged, he is completely just to show me wrath. And so I think what it is doing is it is drawing the person's attention to the evil and it is setting it in sharp contrast to the person's response. It is not a guarantee of repentance. The person might repent. You know what else they may do? They may get harder, like Pharaoh, and keep piling more coals on their head. They're in God's hands. There are all kinds of illustrations of this in Scripture. There's Jesus on the cross. There's Stephen. I love the story of Stephen. He's being stoned. He says, don't lay this sin to their account. And God answered his prayer, and the man who was in charge of the stoning is knocked down on the Damascus Road and born again. God answered his prayer. I love the story of Joseph. I don't have a lot of time with this because we've got to quit. Think of evil men's schemes and Joseph. We talk a lot about bullying today. He had a bunch of brothers who hated him and bullied him. Eventually, they throw him in a cistern, and they're going to kill him. A caravan of Ishmaelites come by. They say, why should we just kill him? Let's bring him out, and we'll sell him into slavery. They sell him into slavery, and he goes down into slavery. He's bought by a man named Potiphar. He rises in prominence in that household, and everything is going well for him. And all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife lies about him, and he's thrown in prison. Comes out of prison eventually as God brings him out at the right time and he puts him in a place of power in the kingdom. And then Joseph's brothers show up. That is not dumb luck. That is the hand of a sovereign God. And God is doing two things. One, he's calling Joseph's brothers to account and the other is he's testing Joseph. Can you imagine how surprised Joseph's brothers were when they found out this is Joseph? Can you imagine? And they know that he, they are completely in his hands and he can kill them. He can sell him into slavery. 
and he does not. Dad comes and lives with him, you know the story, and then dad dies. And the brothers say to themselves, we are done for now. The only reason Joseph didn't kill us is because of dad. And they come to Joseph and they say, forgive us. And he weeps. And he asks them a question, am I in the place of God? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about salvation, as it is at this day. Am I in the place of God? We get ourselves in trouble when we try to do God's work for him. And so he says, and this is the closing question, who in your life are you just continually trying to stick it to? Who in your life are you not willing to let it go? Is there a person like that? If there is, it is holding you back from God's blessing. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is here. And Lord, as we close today, I pray that you would help us that we might live in these truths. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. stand with us. I live.